Our sermon text today is Psalm 45. We're going to read the whole psalm, Psalm 45. Reading the whole psalm. Before we have that reading, we'll pray and seek the Lord's blessing. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we sit here, your people gathered together to hear and to study your word. My Father, please help me as I speak, that I may speak according to the wisdom of God by the power of your Holy Spirit. Our Father, please help us all as we listen. May we be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and meek, gentle hearts, willing to receive the word of God that we may apply and understand it. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 45. It's entitled to the choir master, according to lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. Verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendour and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is for ever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God... Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honour. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favour with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many coloured robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In the place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Amen. May God bless his word to us. They're not quite so common in Australia today, but um, I have known Australians, and I'm sure there are still some around, who um, have some kind of almost worshipful um, regard for the British royal family. Royal watchers, you might call them. They consume anything they can see or find or hear about the royal family. They get very, very excited about royal weddings 
They buy magazines that have stories about the royalty. If we were to go back, you know, a few decades, one of the very first things that was broadcast on British national TV was the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. I'm told, now obviously I wasn't alive at the time, nor was I in Great Britain, but I'm told that in those houses where there were TVs, when people saw the Queen arise from um, having been coronated, from having the, the crown set upon her head and being made officially, as it were, the Queen of Great Britain and its dominions, I'm told that in their houses on TV, those people who could see this happening before their very eyes, they stood up. They stood. Something wonderful in their eyes was happening and it was, as it were, built into them to honour their queen. And so they stood to honour their queen. Though they may have been 100 miles away, though the queen had no idea who they were and obviously could not see through walls, nor could any of her servants, yet in their own houses they stood to honour their queen. It's traditional in Australia, if you're having a traditional wedding, the very first thing that you do is you have a toast to the queen. Or if we had a king, it would be a toast to the king. Sort of disappearing from standard weddings these days, but that is, if you were to get a book of etiquette about how to conduct a, um, a wedding reception, the first thing to do is to have a toast to the royalty, to the queen. Well, the author or authors of this psalm, of the sons of Korah, professional poets, professional songwriters, court poets, be it one or more person, they were royal watchers in their day. They, they looked upon the royalty as a gift given directly from God. They looked upon the royal family and the service of the king to God as something that was glorious, something that set their nation apart from any other nation, something that made them, as it were, something that was a physical sign, as it were, that they indeed were the blessed people of God. They had a king whom God had set in place, a king who kept God's law enforced. And so when there's going to be a royal wedding and the command comes down to the songwriters and poets, I want a song for the royal wedding. They responded with joy. They responded with pleasure. What better thing is there for someone who loves his king, for someone who loves the fact that God had given them a royal family with a promised saviour to come from that family? What better thing could there be than to write a song or a psalm for a royal wedding? It was a service that he has undertaken with joy. How do we know that? Well, look at how he's opened. Verse 1, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. My heart overflows. I'm rejoicing. My heart is bubbling up. My heart is like boiling water, you could interpret that. Bubbling, boiling, overflowing, a stream gushing out of a hillside could give you the idea. 
My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. That's interesting. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. He's kind of implying there that what he's about to say has been given to him to say. He's not saying, scribes, prepare to hear what it is that I have to say. He's not saying, scribes, I'm going to speak, you write it down. He's saying, I'm the scribe. I'm writing something down that is being given to me. Who would be giving him the words? Who would be giving him the words? All scripture, correct. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The author is the scribe. Someone else. Someone else is giving him the words to write down. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the author is transported, as it were, into happiness, and the author is being carried along as he writes by God's Holy Spirit. And the author is writing for us the breathed out word of God. And he rejoices. And the author, I want to say, lapses into holy prophetic hyperbole. Holy prophetic hyperbole. What does that mean? Holy. The words are pure and good. The words are from God. The things that he is saying are holy. Prophetic. He's saying more than he knows. He's speaking of something greater than the immediate subject that's right in front of him. Hyperbole. Hyperbole. Hyperbole is deliberate, vast exaggeration. Deliberate, vast exaggeration. Millions of people agree with me. That's hyperbole. When um, the Jews said, you see, all the world is going to Jesus. That's hyperbole. You know, every single person upon the world was obviously not going to Jesus at that moment. What they're trying to say is, you see how popular this man is. He's drawing people, as it were, from out of the cracks in the walls. He's incredibly popular. They spoke in hyperbole. All the world is going to Jesus. Well, the authors here, or author, singular, is writing concerning a royal marriage and he goes off into the world of holy prophetic hyperbole. Look at the things that he says of the king. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. How would you know? You know, if, if you how, how would you know? How would anyone know? Who's the most beautiful girl in the world? Who's the most handsome man in the world? How would anyone know? It's hyperbole. 
He speaks, for example, of the king sitting upon a throne at verse 6 that is forever and ever. This is messianic hyperbole. You see, the king is of the line of David. Many think it may well be one of the weddings of King Solomon. Now, I don't know. I don't claim to know for sure. I mean, Solomon had so many weddings, you'd start to think they were just a routine. But nevertheless, many think it may have been one of the weddings of King Solomon. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's, he's, he's writing about a royal wedding. Remember, he's been given a commission. Give us a psalm to sing at the royal wedding. And he speaks of the king as though the king himself were the saviour. Well, in the Jewish mind, that kind of makes sense because the promise is, of course, that the saviour will come through the line of David. He says things concerning the king that are hyperbole, vast, holy, prophetic exaggerations. Furthermore, He even says things concerning the bride that are not in the same degree, not quite to the same point, but are also holy, prophetic, hyperbole. For example, the bride is told that her children shall be looking at verse 16, princes in or over all the earth. She's told that all the peoples of the world, looking at verse 12, it says, the people of Tyre will seek your favour with gifts, the richest of people. What was Tyre in this day? Tyre was a Phoenician city, a trading city. It was a, a city and a kingdom of its own. It was a naval power. That naval power was used to trade throughout the Mediterranean Ocean. And basically, the richest people alive at that time, the richest individuals alive at that time, were most likely citizens of Tyre because they had access to trade from all over the Mediterranean. And things like the routes from, like the travelling routes or routes from the Far East, from, from Asia, came through that part of the world to the coast. So you've got this incredibly busy port this incredibly busy crossroads where incredibly valuable goods were being traded constantly. Where you've got that kind of turnover, you've got vast wealth being accumulated. And the promise here is to the bride that the people of Tyre will seek your favour with gifts. Now, you use a little bit of um, logic If the richest, most powerful people are seeking your favour with gifts, what about every other people? What about every other nation? It's the same. They are seeking, as it were, the favour of the king by first of all obtaining the favour of the queen. All the world, all the world, daughter, princess, all the world, will come to you hoping that you would whisper a good word in the ear of your husband on their behalf. Holy, prophetic hyperbole. The next thing I want us to see, and I'm sure you've already made these connections because of some of the readings that we've had already, this is what you would call 
a messianic psalm. Messianic psalm. There are things in this psalm that connect it to other psalms and specifically through the New Testament we know are speaking particularly of Jesus, the son of David, the saviour, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is enthroned even now at the right hand of God the Father, wielding the power of God with the scepter in his hand. So looking at that, for example... At verse 6 of the psalm, we're told, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, I know we've already read it, but look once again at Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 8. We've read it before. Let's read it again. Understand, this is the Holy Spirit speaking to us through the author of the book of Hebrews, telling us this is the exact way that you are to interpret this psalm. This is the meaning that was built into this psalm. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, but of the Son, he says, but of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, But of the Son of God, he says. But of Jesus of Nazareth, he says. But of Jesus our Saviour, he says. But of Jesus who died upon the cross, he says. But of Jesus who was raised on the third day, he says. But of Jesus who reigns at the right hand of God the Father, he says. And then he quotes Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. It's not the main theme that I want to pick up today, but notice here immediately two people are called God. You know, I I keep, you know, I say to you constantly when you're reading the scripture, if you're looking for the cues that the Holy Spirit has built into the scripture, sure. You know, if you want to find a confessional statement in Scripture that says there is one God subsisting as three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, all right, I can't point you to that one particular verse. But look at this particular verse. But of the Son, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, your throne, O God. What's he just said about Jesus? You are God, the Son of God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Verse 9, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. He has called Jesus God and he has called someone else God who has anointed Jesus, the Son of God. God has anointed God. You know, I mean, Do we really think that God anointed himself God? That God made sure that everybody knows that he's God? God singular? Mono God? God only? How much sense does that make? God has anointed God the Son of God. God. What does that mean? Why would that mean that? How how would that come about? Well, remember, Jesus, when he was incarnate, come to the world as a servant in the form of a man. It's what the theologians call his humiliation. 
when people looked at him, unless they were looking through the eyes of faith, all they saw was another man with blood, skin, flesh. He needed to eat. He could get tired. That's all they saw if they were not looking through the eyes of faith. And so this man, Jesus of Nazareth, considered to be the son of the carpenter, considered to be a rebel and a criminal and put to death, this man God anoints as God, the son of God, demonstrating to all the world that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Raising Jesus from the dead, confirming that every word that Jesus said is the word of God because God in Christ has spoken. Psalm 45 is speaking to us about the Son of God. Psalm 45 has, as it were, connections or cues into other passages of Scripture. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. Turn to Psalm 2. We'll pick Psalm 2 up at verse 7. No, we won't. We'll we'll pick it up at the beginning. It's too good not to read the whole thing. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Oh. Therefore, God, your God, just reading Psalm 45, 6, I've got two passages open in front of me, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Therefore, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You shall break them with a rod of iron, a scepter, the symbol of the king's authority. Remember in the book of Esther, Esther approaches the throne. No guarantee that she will live. No guarantee that she will live. She approaches the throne when she was not called. And the king, what does he do? He stretches out to her his scepter, which is a symbol or a sign of his mercy. You're accepted. You're recognised. The king carries a scepter. You are recognised. The Lord Jesus has a rod of iron. Turn to Psalm 110, which, mind you, is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. And I think it's actually the most quoted Old Testament scripture in all of the New Testament. Verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, once again, two people being addressed as God. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule. In the midst of your enemies. 
another messianic psalm quoted all over the New Testament. Turn back to Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, speaking of the Son. We know from Hebrews chapter 1, this speaks of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Remember in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that we're told that for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or how about Psalm 61? I'm sorry, Isaiah 61, verse 1, quoted by Jesus himself. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The psalmist or psalmists, whoever wrote Psalm 45 of the sons of Korah, as I said, he was writing a wedding psalm. He was a royal watcher. He was transported, as it were, to delight by the thought of a royal wedding. And he was writing, in some ways, more than he knew. He was writing about the Son of God, the Anointed One, the One who rules with a rod of iron. And as I say to you, this is not, you know, there there are times when 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 a teacher teaches you from the Scripture and they're turning you to various passages and... It might be arguable. You know, I'm not saying it's necessarily bad teaching, but it might be debatable. Oh, look, he's making this connection here and he's making that connection there and he might just have this one wrong. But this time, my friends, these connections are given to us by the Holy Spirit himself in the New Testament. This is a royal wedding and it's the wedding or the marriage of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that the psalmist ultimately has in view. The scripture tells us this. That's what we know from reading our Bibles. So we've looked at the fact that the psalm was written for a wedding and that the author was transported into holy prophetic hyperbole. He was carried along by the Holy Spirit, wrote that which God would have him write. God breathed out through him the very words of God. And we've looked at the fact that he wrote of the Son of God. He wrote of the Messiah. And we know this from Scripture. Well, let's look at what he has to say about the bride. The bride. Who indeed is Jesus' bride? Who is his betrothed? Who is his beloved? Purchased at great cost. The bride, the bride descending from heaven, clothed as a bride in beautiful garments, dressed all in white, denoting purity. And it's God himself. And I'm thinking now of the picture in the book of Revelation. It's God himself who enrobes her. Let's look at this bride. Verse 10, hero daughter and consider 
and incline your ear. Hear, O daughter. She's a daughter, but whose daughter? Well, she's the daughter of whoever brought her into the world. My friends, we're all the children of whoever God used to bring us into the world. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Forget your people and your father's house. You know, we all want, we all desperately pray that our families will be with us in the kingdom of God. And that on the final day, our families will be with us in the presence of the Lord. And that in the new heavens and the new earth, our families will be with us. And all of us who have children under our care, all of us raise our children according to this desire. If we're truly Christian, we do. We raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We're attempting, as it were, to pour the word of God into them. We're hoping that by our ministry as parents, God will raise up from us godly children who themselves will be inheritors of the kingdom of God, brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ, our brethren. But we all know the truth, and that is, I think, for anyone here, I hope you know I'm speaking accurately, not all of our families share our faith. Not all of the people to whom we have blood connection are people who worship the Lord Jesus. You see, the Lord Jesus has separated us from the world and sometimes that separation cuts right through family lines. He's separated sometimes fathers from sons. He's separated sometimes mothers from daughters. He's separated brothers from brothers. And any other variation you can think of, he's done it to make his own, his own. And look at what's said to the bride. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. What does he mean, forget? Now, I don't think he literally means that we are to forget that we have families. I don't think he literally means that we're not to be praying for the salvation of the ones whom we love and the ones to whom God has given us blood connections, as it were. That's not what he means. He means your whole estate has been changed. Once you were this, now you are that. Once you were not of the royal family, and remember in this instance he means not just any worldly royal family. Okay, not the Elizabethan line. And I don't, I mean, no disrespect to Queen Elizabeth II. But in the end, she is human and she is of a human line. And that human line will come to its end on the final day. Or before, if that's the will of God. It has happened to other royal families. The royal family. The royal family of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. The royal family, which is the people of God. You've been moved from one family connection to another. You were a child of Adam. Remember him? The one who failed the test. The one who brought all of his offspring into darkness and slavery through sin. You were his child. But now... You're God's child. 
But now through Jesus Christ our Lord, you have a new king, a new father, a new family. Don't take too much pride in your family. I mean it. It's a warning to all of us. All right? I love my family. I am fierce in my love for my family. I I admit it. It's true. But I have been made a member of God's family. I have connections to the royal family. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus spoke of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he spoke of the fact that we, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, will dwell with you. That demands my highest loyalty. That inspires my worship. That means that I answer to them, not to anyone upon this world. I answer to them. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, that's our family. If you are in Christ, that is your family. The royal family. Forget your people and your father's house. The ESV reads, and the king will desire your beauty. A legitimate translation would be, for this reason the king will desire your beauty. And is also good. But for this reason, due to this, the king will desire your beauty. You you see what's being said. The more we separate ourselves from the love of the world and that which our life once was, the more beautiful we become in the eyes of our God. We're growing in grace and faith and Christ-likeness. God is making us what he wants us to be. When we seek for a spouse, when we seek for a husband or a wife, there are things that we're looking for. There are desirable traits that we want to see. Certain look, a certain smile. And you all know the fact, you know, to some people... Some people you find attractive, other people you do not find attractive, and it's also the same with the people amongst whom you mix. Some people find you attractive, some people find you unattractive, and sometimes you can't even understand exactly what it is. You can look at someone and say, and I know I can, I can look at someone and say, I know that girl's a pretty girl and in many ways attractive, but, you know, no interest on my part. Just, there's nothing there. We go seeking for certain traits, certain things that we find desirable. Isn't it amazing? Our God, our King, our Saviour, our betrothed husband, he just went seeking for the elect. Be they ugly, be they in the swamps, be they covered in the dirt and dust of sin, be they sold in wickedness, be they slaves to a hardened conscience. Fornicators, idolaters, homosexuals, thieves, liars. Oh, and such were some of you, says the Apostle Paul. The Lord Jesus went seeking for the elect and there was absolutely nothing in them to make them attractive. Absolutely nothing. It's as though he went, you know, if just to put it in sort of a common idea, if he was the best looking guy in school, he was looking for the ugliest girl he could find. But such is his power 
that he can take the ugliest girl he could find and make her the most beautiful among women. All right, that's you and I, my friends. There was nothing in us to recommend us to God. Absolutely nothing, not a thing. We have no righteousness of our own. Our good works are but filthy rags. Whatever you think your best points might have been, they meant nothing at all to God. Nothing. None of us is there but by the grace of God. None of us is there but by the fact that God set his heart upon us. None of us is there but that the king came seeking for us in mercy and in love. And he makes us more and more the way he wants us to be. He transforms us. He transforms us according to that which God considers to be desirable. According to that which God wants to see in his people. He plants the seed. He waters the seed. He raises his crop. He brings in his harvest. And his harvest is souls transformed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, loving and serving the Lord their God and obeying his commandments. That's what this king does. That's what's being taught to us here in this wedding psalm. Forget your people and your father's house. Turn away from that from which you have been redeemed. Put your eyes upon the king. And he will desire your beauty. For he is giving you your beauty. In the New Testament, it speaks of inner beauty. Inner beauty. A woman is told not to worry too much about the outer beauty but to seek to be the one who has the inner beauty that is the fruit of God's Holy Spirit working in our lives. That which the the king desires in his bride. The bride is drawn from people and a house that is not in any way comparable to the royal family to which she is drawn. That's us, my friends. Not many of the mighty, not many of the wise, not many of the powerful. That's us, my friends. The bride is made the king's daughter. Hear, O daughter, and consider, verse 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider. Drawn, as it were, into the family of God. Notice that she is made beautiful. Many coloured robes. Who else wore a many coloured robe? Remember, his name was Joseph. And God used him to work a great deliverance in the land of Egypt. And that many coloured robe was the sign of his father, Jacob's favour. It made those around him jealous. It may well have made him in some way proud. We're not told that Joseph was a sinless saviour but we're certainly told that Joseph was a righteous and faithful man in the eyes of God. She is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her with joy and gladness. They are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. 
You know, all, sing, all sorts of things are said about the Apostle Paul, misogynist, chauvinist, woman-hater, pig of a man. I've heard it said, I've, I've read such things, I've, I've heard ladies say such things at Bible studies, honestly. Let's read Ephesians chapter 5 from verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendour without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Can you see that the thoughts being expressed to us in Psalm 45 run parallel to the things that the Apostle Paul has written concerning the relationship of a husband to his wife. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Son of God, he's the husband. The church, she's the bride. In Psalm 45, the bride is granted to come to the king in many coloured robes with her virgin companions following behind her with joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king, my friends. This is, um, in a way, how do I put this? The idea here is that this girl, as she approaches the king, is so absolutely beautiful that he can't wait to get out of public sight to be with her. I'll just leave it at that. Okay, that's the idea behind what is said. That's why we enact the covenant of marriage in a church. That's why. Because the relationship between a man and a woman is a sanctified relationship when it's in covenant with God. When the two become one flesh behind that protective wall of marriage the idea is that godly offspring will come forth from that union. And this picture here is a picture of sexual desire. The king loves his bride. He can't wait to be with his bride. Look at what Paul says, presenting the church to himself in splendour without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The wives that a husband is to nourish and cherish, just as Christ does the church. The wife to whom a husband only cleaves. She's the love of his life. Husbands, we should love our wives as we love no other human being upon the face of the earth. 
The only one who we should love more than our wife is our Saviour. And the Apostle Paul says that that relationship is profound. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I wonder if Psalm 45 was there in the background of his mind. The Apostle knew the Bible very, very well. Notice that this union is to be fruitful. This union is to be fruitful. Our husband is the living God, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been brought into the royal family. We, the church, have been brought into the royal family. It is the intention of God that his bride produce royal offspring. Now, that production is not by what you would call natural generation. By natural generation, sinners give birth to sinners. It's as simple as that. That production is by supernatural generation. It's not within our power, though we've been given the mission of doing it. We're to bring forth into the world princes. Looking at verse 16 of Psalm 45, In the place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. Remember the line that was given to Isaiah? Here I am and my children with me. Isaiah was a preacher of the gospel to a nation that basically did not listen to the gospel, but he had disciples. He was preaching the gospel and there were those who were believing and accepting the gospel that he was preaching. And Isaiah called those ones his children. His children. We... The bride of Christ have been sent into the world for the begetting of the children of Christ. Okay, the marriage union is meant to be a fruitful union. God did not give a husband and wife the joy of sexual relationship merely for the sake of sexuality itself. It was given for the purpose of fruitfulness, to raise up offspring. A godly generation. We, the church, have allowed the world to separate in our minds sexuality and childbearing. They should not be separated. They should not be separated. God made them male and female. God made them with their sexuality. And God told them to go out into the world and to be fruitful. They had no contraceptions. He didn't tell them to go out into the world and be sexually fulfilled, though I'm sure he wished them every joy in the raising up of their offspring. He told them to go out into the world and be fruitful, filling the world. My friends, God has set it in place that the church will be used by him in the begetting of children. And we do it through the preaching of the gospel through the preaching of the Holy Word of God to our own children and to anyone else who will listen, that we may call people into the kingdom of God by the power of the Word of God. The church of the living God ought to be a living church. First rule of biology. The only one here who's got a degree in biology. What is it? From life comes life. 
Life doesn't come from death. It doesn't come from sterility. That which is living begets that which is living. From life comes life. The living God has set a living church upon the earth to preach the living world and to draw people from death to life. That those who are drawn, the children who are made, they will be rulers, princes in all the earth. We will rule and reign with Christ Jesus. Do you think I might be going a bit too far? I don't think so. I don't think so. The scripture tells me something. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 18, which is the letter to the church of Thyatira. Remember, these are the words of the Lord Jesus himself. The churches in the book of Revelation are representative churches. In other words, anyone who is a Christian who is of the church of God, the church of the living God, can draw truth from these letters. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Stop and know, verse 23, and all the churches. Understand, Jesus was speaking through John specifically to the church at Thyatira and to all the churches. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, verse 24, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end. Stop. The one who conquers. How do we conquer? How do we conquer? Does it look like a worldly military victory? No. Conquering is what? And keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Oh, Ooh, who's got the rod of iron? Who's got the scepter of righteousness? Who rules enthroned at the right hand of God the Father? The Lord Jesus Christ does. What's the promise here to the churches? To the one who keeps the Lord Jesus' works until he comes? What gets placed into your hand? A rod of iron. Authority, power, rulership. He is the great king, the king of kings, lord of lords. He rules over all. What does that make his children? Also of the royal family. Also with authority. 
princes. Rulers in the making. Sometimes rulers practising their authority even now. Each and every one of us here who is in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are rulers in the making. Princes in preparation. Our hand is being shaped for the scepter of righteousness. Believe it or not. We will rule with and as the Lord Jesus Christ rules. Because we're members of the royal family. Because those who are begotten through the same faith that God has gifted to us will also be members of the royal family. Princes throughout the earth, ruling over the earth. Those who are in Christ are privileged. Verse 17 of Psalm 45. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. I think it's God speaking. And I think it's God speaking to his people who have become his bride. And he's saying that we, his people, have been granted to live as Christ himself lives eternally. We will be set apart as the people of God and recognised by all sentient beings who have ever lived, man and angel. We will be recognised as the children of God forever. Nations will praise you forever and ever. The bride is never to be forgotten. The bride is never to be divorced. The bride is never to be disowned. The bride is never to be cast, as it were, into the dirt. The bride shares in the same life as her husband, and he has conquered death. My friends, we who are in Christ, we could be in no better place. We who are in Christ, we could be given no greater gift. We who are in Christ are the beloved and the desired of God himself. It doesn't get better than that, my friends. It just doesn't. There's no higher attainment for humanity than to be in Christ, to be desired by the king, to be clothed by the king to be used by the king for the begetting of his spiritual children, his kingdom that will be forever and ever eternal. You look at the world that we live in. You look at the darkness on people's faces. You look at the rules that governors are setting in place. You're going to get, as I have been at times in the last number of weeks, in some dark places when you look at those things. It's darkness. It's madness out there. The people are under a strong delusion, unsure of it. But my friends, turn your eyes upon Jesus. He is our husband, our betrothed, our beloved, and he loves us. We are his desire. He shed his blood for us. We are his beautiful, glorious, victorious, eternal bride. It doesn't get better than that. 
It just does not get better than that. And so what would I say? I'll say this, and this I say to the world. This I say to the governors. This I say to the magistrates. This I say to those who pass those foolish laws. This I say to those who think that they can tell the church how God is to operate his kingdom. Be very, very careful because you're putting your hands on the bride of Christ. Once again, back to the book of Esther. That evil Haman, when he realised that judgment was about to fall, he crawled, as it were, to Queen Esther. He approached her. The king had gone out in his anger. He turns around and he comes back in and what does he find? But that evil Haman within reaching distance of his bride. Remember his answer? And he wasn't a particularly great king, Ahasuerus. What? This groveling slime would approach the queen even in my own palace? And he was taken out to be killed. Well, Ahasuerus in that part of the Bible is really only a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, at least in some ways. And Queen Esther is really only a picture of the church in some ways. I'm telling you, I warn you, world outside, if ever you hear my words, I warn you. Outside of the church, I mean. I warn you. My cries go up to my king night and day. I pray night and day. You want to drive me into a dark place? Do it. You want to do your worst? Do it. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is my betrothed. Scripture tells me that we, his people, are his beloved and that he is mighty and all-powerful. He bears a sword. He carries the scepter of righteousness. You had better fear him. You had better fear him because you're going to answer to him. I won't do anything stupid. I won't take up arms. I won't launch a physical rebellion. Don't worry about that. But I pray to my king night and day. And there are nights when my pillow is drowned in tears at this moment of time. You do not tell the church who may enter in. You simply do not. You don't have that right. You're out of your lane. You're out of place. You've forgotten that your authority came from God and that God has ordained what it is that you cannot do and what you can do. You're in rebellion against the living God himself and judgment is coming. You've laid your dirty, grubby hands upon his bride. Guess what? Your dirty, grubby hands don't leave a stain. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're the children of the living God. He might take his time. He'll come when he's ready, but I'm telling you, when he comes, you will fear. And you'll put your heads under the rocks and cry for the mountains to kill you. And he'll smash you to pieces with a rod of iron and he'll grind you until you powder to be blown away on the wind. Hear the warning. That's what I say to the world. 
Hear the warning. You have no right to attack that which you are attacking and there is a price to pay. And I warn you, kiss the son lest he be angry in the way and you perish in his wrath. To you, the church looks like nothing in particular. A bunch of stupid small-time people with a stupid small-time religion understand something. We're desired by our king. We're clothed by our king. We're being transformed into something that our king wants us to be. We are the people of God. Pass your stupid rules. Do your best. Do your worst. You'll never change the will of God. You'll never take the king off his throne. Your defiance is foolish. The day comes when you will die, either sooner or later. The day comes when he will bring you down, either sooner or later. The day comes when you will be answering directly to him. And he will extract a price from you according to that which you have done. That's my message to the governors of the world. Should they care to listen? Repent now. Make peace with him now. Seek salvation through the Lord Jesus now. Humble yourself now. Join the people of God now. For if you remain in your rebellion, it will not go well for you. And to the saints, I say, consider the gift of God and rejoice. Consider the gift of God and rejoice. We are the family of God. We are his adopted children. We share in his blood through the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, don't worry too much when the battle goes hard. The war is won and the war is ours. We are the victors. We will enjoy the spoils. It's a fact. Let's close in prayer. Now, Father in heaven, we pray that you would drive this truth out into the world, into the ears of all, even the stubborn ones who will not listen. May they hear the warning. May they accept the gospel offer. May they repent of their sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus, look upon your church. Look upon our state. Grant to us revival. Awaken and empower us. Open the eyes of your servants. We are not servants of the governors. We are servants of the living God. We will obey and live at peace as much as it is impossible. But our Lord Jesus, we are for peace and they are for war. Look upon this situation, we pray. And rise up, O Lord, strike down the wicked. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.